as a kid, I, I remember I would also, I was very interested in, um, in vowels. So I kind of had this, this is, you know, when I would have been probably maybe around eight or something, I kind of had this theory that, um, you know, like, like when we say the vowel E, for instance, like we open our mouth up wide versus if we say like, Ooh, we kind of, um, point our lips out. I thought that was all bullshit. (laughs) I don't know why I had this theory that the only reason that we did that was because we've, we just see other people do that. Um, and that we actually didn't have to, it was actually possible to produce all the vowel sounds kind of without um, involving like the lips in that and so I would try and practice doing that. I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Blackcoats. My name is Amit Siddiqui. Before we get to the episode, uh, I need to make an announcement, and that's that we're starting a blog page for this podcast um, and we're looking for writers um, both undergrad and postgrads are, are welcome as well as academics or um, professional writers who want to contribute to to the page and uh, the theme of these blog posts are going to be uh, science-centered and journey-centered so you might have a rant about you know a certain issue maybe conspiracy theories uh vaxxers anti-vaxxers i should say um or climate change whatever it may be or it could be a a blog post about your journey in science some of the difficulties you faced um and that could be uh, you know uh, projects falling apart or you know some of the difficulties you faced um because you're in a minority group uh so it'd be interesting to hear uh, your journeys and your perspectives and we're opening this up to the community for you guys um, to get your voice heard and and to get your work featured on our on our podcast um, now moving on to today's episode oh man it was so good uh, I spoke to Dr. Karen Mulak who is uh, I would say a genius because um, if you listen to the episode when you listen to the episode, uh, our interview, you realize that she's talking about super complicated things, but uh, she's able to break break it. She's able to break it down and unpack uh, some of the some of the concepts so that you know we go along this journey with her. So it was it was a really fun conversation with. We talked about uh, how children learn languages uh, and why we should study children in science. Um, and obviously in the context of psycholinguistics, which was really cool. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this this uh, conversation with her, uh, plus because it was in the anechoic chamber, so that made it uh, probably twice as cool. Um, so yeah, he, hope you guys enjoy this one. But in, in, those, in those setups, I've seen and I've heard people um, hallucinating 
ha- has that happened over here where people have come in here and just start seeing uh, magical fairies or? No. So, I mean, so yeah, this is a anechoic chamber is the official name for it. It's really just a room that is extremely padded all around. So you get no echo off of anything and you do you see in the news like every couple years I always see an article of um, oh the world's quietest room in the world no one has been able to stay in there longer than 45 minutes without going crazy but I mean it's just a quiet room (laughs) yeah yeah I think you know this reminds me of have you heard of sensory deprivation yeah very much of that uh, very much um, because I've heard people go into that and like have full-blown hallucinations mm. because I think the lack of stimuli just uh, almost forces your brain to like it, it becomes well it's like oh we need stimuli here's some colors here's yeah some... exactly well, I mean yeah in here though it's it's just the deprivation of one sense so you still have everything else to I think keep you grounded enough yeah I mean it's it's a bit it's a bit unsettling just because you're always used to um, even if you don't realize it hearing like some um, echoing of of what you're saying, but yeah. I don't f- know. We'll we'll be in here for longer than 45 minutes. We'll see what happens. <laughs> when I first came here, my ears were like it was yeah. such a weird sensation. I had never been. In yeah, the it's room like, like it's like you hear the silence. Yeah, that's, that's um really um cool but trippy at the same time. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, in show business, they say that one never works with children. Um, does does that apply to science? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, children are, uh, in a lot of ways, way more interesting than than adults for a lot of the questions that we ask. Um, yeah, I primarily, I mean, I, I so I primarily research um, language learning and language processing, but I mean, I could, and and we do study language learning in adults, but with adults, it's you know, everyone at the point when you are studying them, um, learning another language, they all have kind of years and years of different experience behind them. So the kinds of conclusions that you can draw about language learning are very different to what you can um, look at with an infant where some studies have looked at language processing in infants while they're still in the womb even. And so that you're getting kind of a much more, you're getting a much rawer state of um, learning and processing. Okay, that makes total sense. You obviously want to take out as many variables as you can when you're trying to understand um, learning a language. And when you're an adult, you've gone through so many experiences, um, so many other variables that you can't control for. So you're looking at children specifically um, before they go through those experiences. Yeah, and, and the fact is too that uh, every adult who's learning another language already has a language in place. So that's going to make the um, learning of subsequent languages a very fundamentally different process than it is for an infant learning their first language going from effectively having no language. Right. Could you elaborate a bit on that, please? Yeah. So um, we know, for instance, that when... An adult is listening to a another language that isn't their that isn't the language that they grew up with. They perceive it in a different way. So this seems kind of a bit kooky of an idea sometimes, um, but it it becomes a bit I think clearer to understand when you think about how 
we readily accept and know that um, people who are um, people who learned a language as a, maybe an older child or an adult, they speak with an accent. Like you can tell when um, maybe someone who grew up learning Spanish is speaking English. You can even, you can tell the difference between, you can tell a French accent, you can tell a Spanish, you can tell a Chinese accent. By the same token, we are also perceiving speech with these accents. So someone who grew up with uh, learning French will perceive English with kind of a French perceptual accent. So they will perceive English differently to how somebody who just um, grew up only speaking English differently to how they'll perceive it. They'll also be perceiving it differently than someone who grew up learning Ch uh, Chinese as their first language, right. like that. So it's almost like a filter Zori in place. Yeah, exactly. You're always hearing it through the lens of your first language or languages. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, what type of questions that does your lab um, tend to want to answer? What, what, what do you guys focus on mainly? Um, so... In my lab group, I'm um, mostly researching uh, questions that are important to how language communication takes place in a multilingual uh, or multicultural um, society, I guess, or community. So a lot of research, particularly the psycholinguistic research that was done early on, was mostly looking at how monolinguals, so people who just um, know one language, how they perceive their one language. Um, we, you know, we learned heaps from that, but that is actually not the majority experience of the world. The majority of people in this world don't just speak one language, and they certainly don't just kind of hear... Um, hear one language in in their life so more recently there's been a shift towards studying how we're able to um, perceive different kinds of speech that differs from maybe what kind of input we got growing up and by the same token how uh, if we're someone who didn't just grow up learning one language but grew up learning multiple languages how that affects our language learning and the way that we perceive speech Okay. So I guess my research is kind of at the moment focused into two main topics and I'm looking at how um, monolinguals. So, yeah, again, that's people who grew up with one language, um, con which contrasts with bilinguals who grew up with two languages, how monolinguals and bilinguals perceive um, speech that is accented. So how you're perceiving my speech, for right. instance. Right, right. And um Conversely, how people who grow up with uh, one or two languages are able to learn words in their own accent, um, in another accent, or in another language. Okay, so correct me if I understand this, if I misunderstood, misunderstood this. So you're looking at, um, first of all, you're looking at how mono, this has been in the past, that mono, they've mainly studied monolinguals. Now you're looking at um, bilinguals or multilinguals. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the question that I come, that I, that I suppose uh, I have is, when do we put that filter in? So we spoke about the filter previously. So does, is, is that, obviously you're not born with it. Is it a year in, 10 years in? 
Well, so it's not just kind of a categorical switch. It doesn't just switch on. And we actually kind of are born with it, or it's at least starting then. So when infants are born, they've already had um, about three months where, you know, their ears kind of switch on when they're about a six-month-old fetus. So they've had three months where they can actually hear some of the speech that's coming in. So they hear it, it's filtered um, through, you know, mom's body. So they can't hear the uh, individual kind of consonant and vowel sounds. Um, It kind of sounds like speech underwater because, well, I mean, they are underwater. (laughs) Um, So what they can hear is the kind of the intonation and, and the sound pattern of the speech. So when infants are born... Could you, sorry, before we go ahead, could you uh, uh, perhaps show us how, what sort of sound? Would they, they wouldn't be hearing the specific syllables, but they'd be like... Mm, 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 yeah, like exactly. That. It's kind of like if, if instead of talking, I just kind of was humming my words, I guess. Okay. Um, and the um, patterns, the intonational patterns across different languages differ. So somebody who's um, speaking Spanish, for instance, will have kind of a different pattern to their speech than than I have right now with, with English. And when infants are born, they are able to differentiate uh, between their language and other languages. Already? Yeah. Because of those those three months of exposure in, in, yep. in the womb? Yeah. So, yeah, they, they can tell based on um, they, you know, they have had three months of input of this particular kind of intonational pattern. So they can tell when that um, is kind of when that is what they've been hearing versus when it's something that they haven't been hearing. Wow. Like if you played Russian to them or something. Right. So they've already been tuned in a little bit towards the language of, of, of the environment. Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, that process of specialization, how long does it um, take before a child is only able to recognize uh, one specific language? So, um, for example, I, I was brought up with Dari, and for the first nine years of my life, I hadn't heard a single word of English. And mm-hmm. when I'd hear people speak English, it all sound like, like I, I couldn't distinguish between the words. It was very yeah. difficult for me. So, uh, obviously, I went through a specialization process where I could only hear the consonants and the, and the vowels and the syllables that were in my language. So, when does that process happen for children? Yeah, so that happens within the first year. Uh, it's called perceptual attunement. So, when infants are born, they're, you know, they're born ready to learn any language that the world can throw at them. Um, so they can tell the difference between uh, pretty much all the consonants and all the vowels that exist in all of the languages in the world. But that's not very efficient um, because not every language has all of those consonants and vowels. So it's it would actually hinder you if you're kind of picking up on kind of accidental differences that uh, someone is producing. You're treating them as real, um, as, as two separate sounds when really they're just meant to be this, two versions of the same sound. Um, so what happens is that we kind of, our focus comes in uh, so that we maintain the ability to distinguish the consonants and vowels that are in our language, but we kind of lose the ability to um, tell the difference between ones that 
contrasts that don't exist in our language. Right. That happens at for vowels, um, at least in in English and in, in most languages that have been studied. For vowels, it happens at about six months. And for consonant sounds, it happens at about uh, one year, at 12 months. So by the time they are one, infants, they're, uh, the way that they hear the consonants and sounds, it's um, very efficient towards their specific language environment. Okay, and that's for monolinguals. Yes. What about bilinguals? Yeah, so bilinguals, um, this kind of, as I said before, the, the issue with um, testing language learning in an adult is that they have kind of all these different variables from their past. So with bilinguals, we have kind of the same thing because there's not just, there's pretty much just kind of one kind of monolingual. You're just, you know, all you hear is this language and all you speak is this language. But there's not one kind of bilingual. So uh, you can have simultaneous bilinguals, and those are kids who um, get two languages pretty much from birth. Um, they can be balanced simultaneous bilingual, so they get both languages about the same amount of time. They learn both of these languages about um, e equally. Or you can have like early sequential bilinguals where they maybe learn one language uh, at home because that's what mom and dad speak. But then when they go um, off to kindy or something, they start learning another language. So all of these kinds of factors, the amount of exposure they get to each language influences when this kind of perceptual attunement occurs. Mm. Um, what we do often find with bilinguals, and this is kind of, this is kind of like a, a, a big point to get across. So like one, two generations ago, even today, people thought, oh, it's not good to raise your child bilingual because they get delayed. Um, and then they don't, you know, they might not learn either language well enough. And it's, it's true, sort of, we do sometimes see these delays. Um, so whereas a uh, monolingual child might become attuned to their um, native consonants at 12 months, it might not be for a few months later that we see that in bilinguals. But this is only because bilinguals are just processing twice as much information mm. as the monolinguals. So it just takes them a little bit longer, but they get there. Mm. And... Um, that's the that's the important message that yes sometimes there are these small delays but the thing is by the time um, these kinds of bilinguals reach school they've pretty much caught up in their language abilities or catch up very soon after mm. and there's actually a lot of it seems benefits to bilingualism so it is um, what sort of benefits yeah so uh, it's it's very interesting it's executive functioning benefits. So um, executive functioning, that refers to kind of your prefrontal cortex in your brain. And it's all these higher level um, activities. So, you know, being able to like inhibit certain um, like thoughts or behaviors or being able to plan or being able to just switch between um, your, having your attention switched on two different things. Mm. These are all... Uh, kind of skills that bilinguals, depending on their particular environment, probably have to do a lot more than monolinguals. So if you 
speak two languages regularly, you're constantly having to focus on kind of just speaking one language and also inhibiting the other language. Um, or, yeah, same with your uh, attention. You have to focus on attending to maybe just one of the languages when maybe you're hearing multiple languages. And while these are skills that bilinguals are doing because they're negotiating their languages, the these things like switching attention and um, inhibiting things, it's just kind of working out those muscles of the brain. Right. And so then they have like kind of these stronger muscles, not just in language based tasks, but in like in just day to day tasks. That's fascinating. Mm. That's so. And so the the reason why bilinguals take um, longer to learn two different languages is because they're essentially doing double the work. And exactly. so they need double the time. Almost. Yeah, because they're they're getting um, exposure to two different languages, but it's not as if um, you know mom and dad are that are to make up for it speaking to them twice as often. They're still getting the same total amount of language exposure as a monolingual, mm -hmm. but now it's just divided by two or or however many languages. Right. That's interesting. Um, so as as kids go through this specialization process where they are tuned in to hear one or two languages um, and we become specialized. So let's say, for example, myself, you can speak Dari and English. Mm -hmm. um, are there benefits to being a multi or bilingual uh, when you're learning a third language compared to a monolingual who's learning a second language? Um, yeah, I think that there are um I think that this is kind of a more recent field, looking at kind of uh, third language learning. Um, but I think that bilinguals do uh, tend to have an advantage of, in this field. Um, one reason why is that they are just already aware that kind of one, um, th there can be more than one way of saying things. Like this is, I think, kind of something that monolinguals have to have to learn whereas to bilinguals it's it's already super obvious mm. um i remember growing like i i am monolingual but i remember growing up as a kid um i grew up in in massachusetts in the northeast of the u.s and there's a lot of spanish around there and i just remember seeing signs that were in english and spanish and i just presumed um, all languages had just a one-to-one -one, um, equ equivalence. And I would just be like studying these signs, trying to work out. <laughs> and I'm always like, I'm like, I'm missing something. Like it's not quite working. But that, of course, is something that a bilingual would never even really think. Right, right. So you thought that the grammatical structure had to be the same. Yeah. So if it was in, okay, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that, you know, the language, all the languages of the world have the same grammar and all we do is swap out the words. <laughs> that's, that's funny. And I could see why you'd, you'd think that. Were you always fascinated by languages? Um, yeah, I was. I, um, yeah, I was always into learning Spanish um, just as a kid, just trying to like pick up little bits here and there. Uh, and then I, I did start taking it in um, high school and was very interested in it. Um, as a kid, I I remember I would also, I was very interested in, um, in vowels. So I kind of had this, this is, you know, when I would have been 
probably maybe around eight or something, I kind of had this theory that, um, you know, like, like when we say the vowel E, for instance, like we open our mouth up wide versus if we say like, ooh, we kind of, um, point our lips out. I thought that was all bullshit. (laughs) I don't know why I had this theory that the only reason that we did that was because we've, we just see other people do that. Um, and that we actually didn't have to, it was actually possible to produce all the vowel sounds kind of without, um, involving like the lips and that. And so I would try and practice doing that. Oh, that's, it was, in- yeah. It was- <laughs> that, that's interesting. Cause it, it, it seems like you thought that those facial expressions and, and the movement of the lips and the tongue and the mouth were more of a social construct. Yeah. Something- it was, so it was a deeply psycholinguistic <laughs> question that I was having, um, as a little kid. How old were you at that time? Yeah. I think I was, I must've been around, uh, like seven or eight or something. Oh, wow. So yeah. you were super young. Yeah. And, and it was just this little game I used to, to play. So did you try to pronounce those different vowels without yeah, moving? Yeah, I was always trying to say words. Like, I probably just looked like a ventriloquist. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fascinating. So how did your um, how did you get into psycholinguistics? I mean, mm. you had this interest as a, as a kid, but how did that evolve and develop? Yeah, so it, it kind of happened a bit last minute um in my in my undergrad so i um i i guess i guess it started in in high school where i took a um psychology class uh, my junior year um which is year 11 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and i loved it i thought it was just so cool i had actually heard in my in the year prior I used to hear, you know, the the juniors talking about the psychology class. And for like a full year, I was just so excited to finally be able to finally be old enough to be able to take this course. I loved it. So I took um, the next level up in my senior year of high school as well and decided, yeah, this is something that I want to do. What drew you to it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I I think it's just. I mean, the way that. The, it, it kind of it still <laughs> sound I don't know maybe dorky or something but it's kind of it tracks back to kind of everything in the world because the, our whole world around us we're perceiving kind of through our psychology so that's just kind of the the root of it all I guess I are you saying that we understand the world through our psychology yeah. is that we try okay yeah I totally get that yeah because we're social creatures and everything that we've created in the world is a social construct which depends on our psychology yeah and it's all yeah it's not if you take humans out of it none of it is actually real in the world it's all it's all us and um i don't know i just i just found that fascinating (laughs) um but yeah so i i decided i wanted to um go into neuroscience so I picked a the universities that I applied to specifically. Um, I picked ones that had that as a major, which um, was actually kind of it was like a new thing um, back then. So this was around like two thousand two, and um, neuroscience was a new thing back then. To to have it be offered as a major um, for undergrad. Oh okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I got into into one of these and yeah, so I was one of those kids who, 
there's a lot of kids, especially I was at a liberal arts school, so I felt like there was a lot of kids kind of wandering around saying, I don't know, what am I going to study? What am I going to study? And I, I was like day one, like neuroscience, let's do this. And um, so I was taking neuroscience classes and, and I loved them. I wanted, I decided I wanted to study um, neurodegenerative disorders. So um, m- mainly Alzheimer's, you know, I wanted to cure Alzheimer's. Uh, again, kind of tracing back because, um, you know, like, what are you without your memories, I guess, was, was the link there. That's a deep question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sad question, but, um, but yeah, so I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be working in a lab. I'm going to be like pipetting and, and all that stuff. Um, and I took intro chemistry, mm-hmm. uh, and I got a C. Okay. <laughs> And next semester, I took the next uh, intro chem class, and I got a C. And it's that's the American system. So a C, it, it's probably about, like, a high pass to a low credit. So, right. I mean, I did it, but I wasn't great at it. And I, I'm assuming, uh, let me make an assumption, you are, like, a really good student, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, that yeah. was a shock to you compared to your other marks? Yes. Okay. So you're a good student. <laughs> Pro- probably some tears. <laughs> but um but yeah, I remember I'd gotten I'd before that I'd only ever gotten one C in um in high school in one of my Spanish classes and I was I was devastated. I think I, you know, ran off into the woods crying. It, my life was over, but <laughs> Wow. Can I just say, um, you're such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I love it. It's it's really good. I love when I see um, students who are passionate about, you know, doing the best they, they can do. So it's good to hear that you were like that when you were high school <laughs> at university. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, these C's made me a better person. I for guess. sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. You'd never want to get that C again. You want just A's, right? Well, <laughs> you're probably right because then I decided, hmm, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> Some people might think, you know, I really gotta, I really gotta buckle down and try a lot harder. I was yeah. like, mm, maybe I'll just leave. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's not a, not not a bad thing. It's good to recognize what you're interested in. Yeah, and and what your strengths are as well. Because yeah. I was I was kind of getting the thought. I hadn't, you know, completely made this decision at this point yet. But I was like, yeah, maybe the um, maybe. You know, working in the chemistry lab, uh, testing these different, um, you know, medications and that for Alzheimer's. Maybe that's best left to the people who got A's. And yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, at, at the same time, I was just kind of naturally uh, gravitating more towards uh, psychology classes. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I the neuro, neuroscience, it's, it's kind of just a bit, it's like a harder psychology I mean, I don't mean more difficult. I mean, hard science, soft science. Right. Um, and so I was taking like, you know, the neuroanatomy courses and all that. But then I'd get to choose all these electives. And I was choosing like learning and memory and um, psychology and language, like like uh, human behavior kinds of things. And and like I loved those and I was so good. I was good at those. <laughs> um, and yeah, so. I was already trying to think maybe I'll do something a bit more more psyche, but I didn't really know kind of what what you do, I mm. guess. Um, yeah, so 
so, so psycholinguistics, I guess, I guess it started in, um, I took learning and memory, as I just said, and my uh, teacher in that, Professor Haberlant, he was um, German, but he spoke with an accent, but his German, you know, it, it sounded perfect. <laughs> like you would never think, you know, he's not going to understand what I say or mm. that I'm not going to understand him. You mean he's English? Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> wow, you got a third language down, Karen. <laughs> English, Spanish, and German. Oh, do not. Let's not count my Spanish. <laughs> let's not count my Chinese. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> deal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so the class was um, learning and memory. So it wasn't even about language, but we were talking about expertise. And he said something that was kind of like a... Um, you know, like blew my mind moment, I guess. Um, he said, all of you who were born here, you are all experts in English and I will never be an expert in English. And like, and then he, you know, the lecture kind of went on to talk about expertise in that, but I was just like, what, what, like, why not? Like, what, <laughs> what, like, well, how is he not an expert in it? And that was kind of the first, um, seed I guess into into psycholinguistics and um you know it ended up like like so yeah the course went on it was actually a very meaningful course for me um we would have uh like tutorials in that unit where we would um do these you know mock experiments like like like, uh, I think they do that here as well. They, they probably do it everywhere. But um, we would do these mock experiments and then as a tutorial and aggregate our data, learn how to analyze it in SPSS. And then we would um, just talk about the results a bit. And then we had to go home and write up like a lab report on it as our homework. And like, I love this. I love like taking the data and just like thinking about it and then like figuring it out. Um is that like, when is that when you realized you wanted to become a researcher? Yeah, that, yeah, I think so. So, um, like I remember, we did one experiment where um, we had to we were shown different um, animals and we had to say is this is which animal's bigger, and what the results were is that everyone's great um, for the smaller animals, but people were worse at telling the difference between these larger animals, and so you try and think, well, why? And the answer is, well, how many times do I see a giraffe? And, like, I don't know if a giraffe is, like, you know, well, I don't know if a hippopotamus is bigger than a rhinoceros, right. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was it was things like that. And I loved just the, just working it out. Mm. Um, and I remember I got one report back, and on it in red, red pen, meanly, it said, like, please see me. And I'm like, oh my god, what did, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> and so I go up after class, all like meekly, and I'm like, yeah, the, there's a, there's a note on here, and um, and he's like, oh, like, come with me. So like, I walk with him to his office, and it's, we're just like in silence, and I'm like sweating, like, oh my god, did did I accidentally plagiarize? You know, and um, so like he sat me down, and he's like, he's like, you get it, <laughs> like, and he was just talking about how um yeah like like I get it I should consider psych and then he also offered me to be um teaching assistant for that course in the next semester 
And um, so, yeah, so that was that that was also a big I guess, you know, I'm a, like a sucker for praise and encouragement, I guess. <laughs> so that one moment is probably why I'm here right now. Wow. Um, and, and it must have been an important because that as you're telling me that story, I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure many other academics and. You can put it down and stay quiet. <laughs> I'm trying it, to hide it, the <laughs> fact that I'm drinking a cup of tea. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally cool. Um, I remember being in my undergrad and, and realizing that I wanted to do a PhD, but not knowing if I was capable of doing mm. it. And an academic approaching me and saying, hey, you're made for this. You should really consider doing it. And I, you, at that moment, it would always stay with me because it pushed yeah. me towards a direction I would have never done or I might have done but I've, I had so much doubt and to someone to come and see that I- in me and to encourage I think that's really great exactly yeah and I mean I don't know if this is if this was the case for you but in my family I was um like the first uh person not to go to uni but to um go to uni kind of with PhD in the back of my mind and that but like I didn't really have any kind of reference you know I hadn't you know, oh, I've seen my brother do this. This is how you'd go and, mm. and do it. So no role models. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, th- I think for people in that scenario, it's it's maybe a bit extra important. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, my father was a um, lecturer back in Afghanistan. He taught history, and my mom was a. Um, but he only um, he only needed a master's degree at that, at mm. that point. So no one in my family has taken a, a PhD. Oh, my uncle has, so I, I, I kind of like, but I, I never yeah. see him. He's in America. Yeah, yeah. But so for me, yeah, especially exactly similar situation where when I had this academic, I'm like, oh, I can actually do this. Yeah. Somebody believes that I can do it. <laughs> I should start believing that. So you're, so you're doing it now? You... That's my next step. So I'm yeah. going to China to study Chinese for about five months and then coming back and doing a PhD. With the application? Like, have you started your application? I've already got accepted. Oh, yeah, I got. Oh, perfect! Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> I think I got a scholarship last year. I won a Chinese speaking competition. Oh. And so they gave me a scholarship. And you're saying your Chinese doesn't but, count? <laughs> and I your think, award, your award-winning Chinese uh, doesn't count. Uh, until I go there, and I'm in the environment, and you know how important it is to be around the environment, to be forced to speak the language. Yes. That's what, after that, I think I'd, I'd feel comfortable telling people I can speak Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> Prior to that, I mean, uh, you know, you can't really, uh, not yet. Yeah. So. But uh, just going back to to your journey. So this person, um, which was your German uh, lecturer, yeah. right? So he had a, a, a big influence mm. on, on you getting yeah. into Yeah, and I, he probably doesn't even know, <laughs> like, right. I guess. Maybe um, he'll hear this podcast and you'll make his yeah. day. Yeah, well, he, he did retire and I sent him a nice message then. So maybe he does. But but yeah, I mean, now it's a bit it's it's a bit um, surreal because like I'm now kind of in that role sometimes. And I just I try to be like I have in the past specifically made a point to um, really encourage uh, people who I think might be interested in in a career in this area and trying to help them Hmm. so you did a a bachelor's in neuroscience Mm. um while also undertaking these linguistic units yeah so it was my i still i still hadn't i thought i i was like oh well i like memory maybe i'll study something about that um i ended up doing an internship and like a thesis project uh, having to do with anxiety disorders so I was like oh well maybe you know I'll go in into something like that but my last semester of my senior year 
I'd finished all my coursework um, towards my major uh, and my minor, and um, I just had like an an extra class open so I could take whatever I wanted. And I took and there was psych of language, and I was like, oh, that seems interesting. And um, so I took it, and and I just I loved that, like like learning the stuff, like how we perceive speech with an accent mm. was it was I was like this is crazy right right and um so I had uh finished the semester and I was like I want to do I want to do this stuff and I was like I don't know I don't know how so I emailed my um teacher and I said can we meet I just I'm interested in this I want to know like like what do I do and so she's like okay let's have dinner and I was like oh my god I didn't I didn't know it was going to be a whole dinner. <laughs> and like I remember the um the night actually I was so nervous. I was like I'm just going to I'm just going to have a, a drink. And and I was like all right that was a good idea that okay I'm much more relaxed. I'm going to have another one. I'll be even more relaxed. <laughs> so I had two drinks and and I go and I meet her at this restaurant for dinner and then she's like, "Oh, let's get a bottle of wine." Oh, and I'm like, "Oh my god." <laughs> So, I mean, I was very loose and open, I guess. It all worked out in the end. But I was a bit like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But, um, yeah, I asked her. I, I was like, well, like, I mean, I want to do this. Where, where, where do I go? What do I do? She's like, um, oh, well, you could, like, work in a lab um, as, like, a research assistant or something. And I was like, oh, like, what lab? And she's like, oh, how about my lab? <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so I ended up working for um a year as a research assistant um in her lab and moved down a bit um about like an hour away from my home and um and yeah and so through that I and and I loved it and um through that the um person whose grant I was working under uh was Professor Kathy Best who is here now and so they had advertised the um, PhD scholarships at, um, at Mark's. And, um, I remember, uh, Julia, my supervisor coming out with the email, like printed out being like, I think you need to apply for this. Um, I applied, I, I got in the first time I did not get a scholarship the first time. Um, so that shouldn't defer or, or I mean, discourage anybody. And, um, so I, I just worked there a bit longer and um, applied the next year, and then I got in and, and moved over here. <laughs> and so you did your PhD here? Yeah. Oh, I did I, it at the Marks Institute, yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. What was that? Uh, you, not only did you change labs, but you changed countries. What was that like? Well, my my mom wasn't too happy. <laughs> I was like, Mom, I'm I'm moving. She's like, where? I'm like, think about the furthest place I could move. <laughs> And she guessed it. She was like Australia, um, but I mean, it's it's not you know. It's still it's it. What there was no real culture shock. I guess it's still you know a Western English speaking country. Um, yeah, it's just I've been here nine years now. So, I mean, the the only thing I like it here. The only thing is it's um, to go home. It's a bit far, or to go anywhere really. Mm. It's a, it's a bit far. It's a bit expensive. Mm. But. Did your mom warn you about the snakes and, and the deadly spiders that exist in Australia? No, or? but they my, they were warning me about John Howard. 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, his it, eyebrows. It, it's it's funny looking back now. He actually he was gone by the time I got here, but um, just some of the like quotes he was he was saying in the news. They would kind of like print out and like show me, um, just, just kind of like against immigrants and, and things like that, oh. which is kind of hilarious now because yeah. now my parents are sitting there with, with Donald Trump. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, John Howard, when he means immigrants, he means everyone that doesn't look Yeah, white. I know. <laughs> they, were just, they were just teasing. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Um, and so when you came over here, what, what did you decide to research? Um, so I what, what my thesis was on was how infants... Um, or when infants can recognize accented speech. And it's some, it's not, it, it, it was a question that I was already um, kind of researching as a research assistant. So it's not like I, I came here and, and thought, how, how do the infants understand me? But, um, but yeah, because that is, it's a pretty, that's a pretty crazy question. I feel like I'm about to go on a spiel now so I took another I'm preparing myself yeah <laughs> um that is a fascinating question because if you think about when infants are learning words they it's very important that they recognize when they're hearing a different word so if a child hears um if if you have a child and your child learns the word ball the way you say it um, or, or we can say, we can use the word, um, nice, I guess is, mm -hmm. is a good Australian. Nice. Yeah. yeah. But if you said, if, if, if you were super Aussie and your child learned it in a very Aussie way, they would learn. I'm not sure. I was like noise. <laughs> oh, noise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, N-O-I-C-E. Yeah. Noise. Yeah. But so then if I come along and I say the word nice to them. It's, there's a completely different vowel in there. Mm. So it's very important for an infant to know that, for instance, noise is a different word from niece. Mm. And those have, and those are the same word consonant-wise. They're just differentiated by one vowel. But then I come along with my crazy accent and say nice. So now this is a situation where it, the consonants are pretty much the same. It's just a vowel difference. But here... If they think that what they're hearing is a new word, then they'll never understand me. Hmm. So they have to somehow work out, yeah, sometimes these vowel differences create a different a different word or, or signal a different word. And sometimes they signal the same word. So how do infants come to, to learn this? Um, That's a good question. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if um, I'm still kind of researching the how do they come to learn this, but I can kind of tell you when they learn it mm -hmm. um so what i did for this experiment was i took australian english infants and um played set them in front of a monitor on mom and dad's mom or dad's lap and they would see two images up on the screen so they would see like a cat or and a dog and a recording either in australian uh english or in jamaican english would ask them to like look at the dog and what I found was that at um, 15 months, when they heard it in Australian, they would look at more at the dog. But when they heard it in Jamaican, they would 
they wouldn't show a preference. They would just look at both of the images equally. And it wasn't until 19 months. Um, I've, I've since also found that they, they also can't do this at 17 months. But at 19 months, suddenly they get it. Hmm. And it seems to be linked to how many words they know. Mm-hmm. So I found, for instance, that even though the 15-month-olds as a group um, couldn't understand the Jamaican accent, the kid, it was positively, their ability to understand the Jamaican accent was positively correlated with their, uh, with the amount of words that they say. So the kids who knew more words were more likely to um, understand the Jamaican accent. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So. But what about the 17 months? 17 months, it's the same, same, same deal. Okay, I found sorry, the exact same thing. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, mm. It makes sense. I mean, if, if the more words you know, um, the more data you have to work with. So you, uh, does it fit in this category or that category? Yeah, I think, yeah, there might be something cognitive kind of going on where they they think, well, you know, they, they kind of know this minimum kind of threshold of words where they now think, they're now maybe more confident as to whether they're hearing an an unknown word or whether this word kind of fits into ones that they already know. Mm, that's fascinating. And so you finished the PhD and looking mainly at um, uh, how uh, infants perceive uh, accented words. Mm-hmm. So that was your... Um, and then after that, you just got a job here. Yeah. How that that's a beautiful arrangement. That's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a it dream was, come true. It's a dream come true, isn't it? Do, yeah, do, no, it's good. Yeah. Um, I mean, they they sometimes talk about how with you know, um, PhD students should go you know like try out their wings, mm-hmm. which means you're you're supposed to like go to another lab and and gain more experience there. Uh, but it doesn't have to be the case, which I think is also an important message. I was a bit. Um, my partner had just started um, med school, so we were a bit um, kind of stuck here, I guess. Mm. Uh, not that, I mean, it's a great place to be stuck. Mm. Uh, but I was fortunate in that uh, one of the researchers here um, got a grant and w- that had a postdoc position um, assigned to it, and, and I got it. Nice. That's that's really cool. Yeah, I've, I've heard that from... Um from my supervisor and other academics that I've interviewed that it's a good idea to move outside your lab because it demonstrates adaptability. It shows that you can get along with new people, new environments, and, and adds a new layer to, to, to you as a person. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've also heard, you know, just if there's good opportunities, take it. Yeah. And don't stray too far away from what you're comfortable with. It's always good to be outside your comfort zone, but when you go too far out, then you have to kind of start from scratch and that could be an issue because it might affect your productivity. Yeah, that's a really good point yeah um okay so we've reached about 48 minutes uh, and this is flown by uh, (laughs) because interesting conversation um that looking back at your journey um what would be some advice you could provide for students who are coming up um so students that are that are undergrads sure my advice would be to if there's something that you're interested in, do not be afraid to contact your um, teachers to to just get more guidance in that. Because, yeah, that's 
like like when I talk about my my uh, German professor there, he contacted me. <laughs> so I was just because of my um, personality and because I didn't even know really what questions I should have been asking. Um, and yeah, and, and personality wise, I was kind of like shy in that and not really like it, it would be a, it's a big effort for me to approach people, I guess. Mm. And, um, but just know, like, it's not scary. These teachers, um, you know, they're, they're passionate about this kind of stuff. Like they want it, they want you to be interested and, uh, they want to help you if you are uh, interested. So, um, and it, and it opens up a lot of opportunities. So, so yeah, so kind of take, take charge and, um, just go build connections and, and you never know, like, like I, so then, you know, I did eventually have the confidence to approach my other, um, uh, lecturer from the psycho language, um, uh, course. And that turned into a job, which turned into my PhD, which turned into my postdoc. Which turned into this interview. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you never know. You just take chances and, yeah. and chase it. Just don't don't be afraid to um, to to talk to your teachers and ask them for advice. Yeah, and a lot of them are very nice, just like Karen. I'm sure yeah. everyone's listening. There's just another human being who's doing their job. Uh, I when I first um, started lecturing, um, or or t- I was I was a tutor at this stage. I had, I was telling about, um, an internship that I had done to my students. I think I was doing, I was tutoring one of like the intro psych classes and I was talking about my internship and afterwards one of the students came up to me and said, Oh, like that sounds really interesting. I would love to do an internship like that. Like, like, what do I do? And I was, I was like new to, like, I didn't really know what to do. And I, I told him, I was like, oh, I don't like, I don't really know the Australian system. Da, da, da. And he was like, oh, okay. Like, don't worry. And left. That was probably eight years ago. And that still haunts me. <laughs> like, I feel so bad that I didn't, um, give him better guidance. Um, so I'm just trying to exemplify the, the point that, yes, your teachers really do want to help you. Yeah. They do care, and that it's good to see you're passionate about it, um, about teaching, which is awesome. And I've had Karen as a <clears throat> as a lecturer for a unit that I did for my Emirates, and it was it was really good. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I contacted her because I just found not only your the content that you're teaching fascinating, but I just saw the enthusiasm while you were doing it. Um, two questions that I ask all my guests. Um, <laughs> the first one is looking into the future. It sounds like. This feels like it's, like, inside the actor's studio. <laughs> Why? Because he always has, like, the set questions. Oh, <laughs> these, are, these are the only two set questions I have. <laughs> Everything else is just, like, ad-lib on the fly. Yeah. We'll see where the conversation goes. Um, looking into the future, what are your aspirations? What do you want to accomplish with yourself? Um, well, so I guess just, just career position-wise, um, you know, I'd like to have a faculty position at a university in... Um, in in psycholinguistics still research research wise um i would like to uh be able to eventually work out ways of just optimizing kind of language perception and uh, language learning um you know it it's kind of a bum rap that you know english is the lingua franca and 
it just it sucks if you didn't grow up having English as your native language or if you didn't learn it early enough to have to be really fluent in it. Um, when I was uh, a research assistant at that lab, I was also volunteering um, teaching English to, to migrants. And there were people in there who were, uh, I remember one woman, I think it was a lawyer in, um, uh, I think she was from Lebanon, and she didn't speak English that well, so, you know, she had some menial job mm. in the U.S., and that's, it's just, yeah, it's not fair. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I'm interested in, I'm always trying to think about ways to maybe move towards if it when I do identify like difficulties that um people may have what are some ways that we could improve improve these right and that would tie into I was going to ask you and this question just came to my mind that the uh, applications and implications of, of your work in society government whatever context it would be what you just mentioned now would that, yeah. would that be it yeah I mean Psychology research, um, a lot of times you see people saying like, oh, what's the point? What's the point? I had a, <laughs> I had a, a rude, uh, I don't want to, <laughs> I had a rude uh, distant family member <laughs> once um, say to me like, oh, how does it feel um, researching something that doesn't help anyone? <laughs> And um, yeah. I was a bit, I was very like taken aback by the question that I kind of just like flustered out some answer. Oh, I, but, I, I thought you were going to say, how does it feel being ignorant? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the first time I'd met this, this, this oh, person. okay. Wow. Yeah. It was, and, um, and it was at a funeral. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Jesus. Oh, no. Could you wait at least? Yeah. <laughs> Too soon, dude. Thanks. Too soon. Thanks for cheering me up. <laughs> um, but, but it. It actually is a very, there are actually very important uh, implications when you do kind of take a moment to think about it, I guess. Mm. And, and I mean, not every single bit of research that we can do is immediately applicable, mm -hmm. but we have to build this kind of base knowledge to mm. then be able to identify where we can put the applications. Yeah. I totally agree. I think uh, the utility of basic science may be hard to uh, understand in the short term, but in the long term, we, you know, all yeah. that builds up. Like the internet, mm -hmm. like, you know, connecting two computers 30, 40, well, I don't know how many years ago, 20, 30 years ago, people were like, what's the use of this? You yeah. Know? But they didn't understand. Oh, you can change the whole world. And, and on the kind of converse side of that, if you said, okay, I'm going to do this project where I'm going to create the internet, that's that's yeah. not possible no. to do in, in a single project no because uh, no one had the foresight of yeah it, of it turning yeah into that something is like what, this. Yeah. yeah um okay last question i promise i'll let you go <laughs> <laughs> so looking into the into the future what are some fears that you have and this could be as broad and as specific as you like um fears that i have uh oh you mean like global warming and, and the whole anything we've heard global warming <laughs> <laughs> um well, I guess some relevant fears to this conversation are just the way that the um, governments are going with, with all the cuts to science and education. You worry that um, we might get kind of put into a position that 
will get harder and harder to kind of um, pull ourselves back out, back out of. Um, yeah, it's just like here and, and in the U.S., I guess my my big hope is that, you know, all the um, everyone's kind of getting this out of their system. And then hopefully with kind of the next round of elections and that it'll tip back even even more to the to the left than than it was. Mm. So politics is a is a big concern when relating to science. And yeah, funding. I mean it, it would have to be we're inundated with it. Yeah, no, no that makes sense. You'd I have to lock yourself away in an anechoic chamber anechoic. <laughs> to, <laughs> to not <laughs> hear about it and be worried about no, it. No, that's true. I think that that is a concern that many people have expressed you know um especially politicians who are ignorant about the utility of science yeah well yeah i so this ties back to just how we were talking about um the importance of of basic research yeah, yeah. cool thank you so much for your time yeah, karen i really fun. appreciate it uh, and i enjoyed this conversation yeah me as well cool <laughs> definitely no <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna delete all this shit just to make sure you don't sneak it in like last time bro <laughs> all this is gone for uh, sure that's what you think no i i thought i'd start with that because um that was one of the funniest things i reckon in that conversation about how she thought when she was a six-year-old the vowels were a social construct oh yeah that, <laughs> i reckon that's an awesome awesome idea for a uh a six or seven year old to be having yeah that that's a weird one isn't it like at, at the age of six or seven she was already um acting like a psycho linguist she was looking yeah at yeah yeah so she really found her passion like like you know if, if that's what you're loving when you're uh, six or seven and you end up doing that as um an adult i guess you've you've really made it yeah. hey you know what i was i was curious about because i had that that sort of uh um i would say a dream that i had when i first did science in high school where I was uh, mixing chemicals in my dream. And then I, it's weird because I moved away from that and then found my way back. And this is something I, I should have probably asked her if she moved away from it and then and then found a w way back. But it's yeah, interesting no, it's how it all worked out. Because I, when I was in primary school, I was really into science and love science and all that type of thinking and um, moved away from it a little bit. And I went through music and stuff like that. And, and yeah found it again so yeah yeah it's, it's interesting but it, going back to the uh facial movements and the tongue and the lips i like how she would try and test it to like try and see if she could make the vowel sounds the ease and the ooze without yeah. actually doing the face yeah it's not just the face man it's uh, i did that linguistics you know with her it's actually the, the movement of the tongue um the throat the the larynx moves up and down um it's actually fascinating how we we produce sound and how we alter the the the, the vocal tract to produce different vowels so for example if you say ah your tongue is way lower than it is if you say yeah. e so if you, you may have not realized but the back of your tongue actually goes up when you say e and so her idea was oh that's all nonsense i bet i could do it without doing any of that 
But interesting, she said that, that she looked like there. yeah, she looked like she said that she looked like a ventriloquist. So she was, <laughs> yeah. so she wasn't moving her yeah. face per se, but obviously she was moving her tongue and and her vocal tract without realizing it. Yeah, yeah, and trying not to. It's something I, I actually have kind of, I guess not to that same level of um, like uh, same level that Karen had, but something that I had noticed uh, with my son because he had some trouble. He's just started kindergarten this year. And he had some trouble pronouncing particular sounds. So, like, for instance, a, the t sound at the mm. end of words, he just wouldn't, couldn't say it. He couldn't say it. And he had, they had given them these words to learn. They give them sounds to learn. So he had to, like, deal with all, all of that stuff. Mm. And, and that's what I had to try and teach him when I'm trying to teach him how to talk is really how, like, I have to get him, made him stick his tongue out every time he said a word with t, you know, mm. like right out of his mouth. Um, mm. and, and it was uh, TH words as well. Uh, and he, he was when he first started doing it, it was a bit silly because he'd stick his tongue way too far out. Yeah. yeah, but it just got him thinking about it every time that movement he had to do, and now he kind of pronounces them pretty well. Yeah. Uh, so it's when you think about the actual muscles you have to move to talk, yeah. it's kind of interesting. It's kind of mind blowing, and it just um, illustrates how how complex speech is. Just taking away the the brain itself and focusing on the vocal track, uh, we don't realize that there's actually a great video that I want to share with everyone on, on the Facebook page. So if you haven't liked us on the Facebook page, do that. You can find us on Blabcoats. But there's a video, an X-ray of a person pronouncing like different vowels and different uh, and different uh, syllables, and you can see how how many fine motor movements oh, occur amazing. with the yeah, tongue and the that. lips yeah. and, and how much of an influence that will have on the sound that you hear. It's actually really mind-blowing. But going back to your, that TH, um, TH sound, you know, uh, so many people uh, who have been listening already know that uh, I was an immigrant to Australia, so I was about seven or eight or nine uh, when I first came to Australia. Um, and uh, I had never been exposed to English prior to that. Maybe in, in movies, but I never used to watch uh, um, movies at all. Um, but what was interesting is that in, in diary, we don't have the th th like third. We don't have that. So we have the like T, like T, yeah. and we have th, which is very close to th. Right, and so I couldn't say third. So every time I would say third, and every <laughs> <laughs> and everybody would laugh. So I'm uh, like, I'm the third one. They're like, Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shithead. Yeah, yeah. It's so, amazing though. Like, and I get that because um, uh, my wife also speaks German. There's some some sounds are just really hard to say that I just can't get my like mm. the muscles in my my throat. On yeah. my voice around, yeah. you uh, could rolling rolling my R's as one. Yeah, yeah, I can't can't do it. It's very hard. It's something that I have a lot of difficulty with. It's it's because it's not in in the English. Uh, yeah, uh, like it's not part it's of something the I've, I've never practiced. So. Exactly, but Spanish people, on the other hand, mm. uh, can do it without any uh, without any issues. And this is something that Karen was saying that we perceive languages through the filters that we already have in place. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why um, it's interesting because coming from you know a background from Afghanistan and coming into this country and meeting other Afghans who you know um, who are also immigrants and and uh, language is also their second language and hearing them uh, pronounce like English words is hilarious <laughs> yeah, yeah. because instead of like but every language does this so I'll give you an example so in English yeah, we say Parramatta but in if you understand it through the perspective or the, the, the filter of Afghani, it's 
Podomoto. Cabramada becomes Kadomoto. Yeah. This one guy, one one of my dad's friend, um, called from Perth and he goes, Oh, is your dad home? And I'm like, This is obviously in Dari. I'm like, No, he's like, Well, just tell him, you know, so and so called from Put. I'm like, Where the hell is Put? <laughs> You know, uh. But it's not specific to Dari. Um, other languages like Chinese, yeah, um, like Mandarin Chinese for Australia, they say "ao dalia," you know, or Sydney is like Sydney. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they they put the inflections that are in their language into the English. That's it. Yeah. So th- that the English word can only be understood 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 through through their, their vowels and their act their their consonants. Yeah. So it's like a filter's already been established, and and it has to go through that filter if they want to understand it. Yeah, yeah. It's very inter- it's a very interesting field, and um, I liked how uh, Karen also brought up this difference between uh, bilinguals and monolinguals, and some of the advantages of of learning a second language. Yeah, yeah. And um, and how people who speak two languages particularly really early on they have to use all of these skills which help them in yeah. other areas of their life so they have to be able to control the way they think about things mm-hmm. um they have to have greater attention because they're always kind of doing this extra higher order kind of level of processing in their mind working in two different languages mm-hmm. and that it's actually and shifting between tasks as well yeah exactly yeah yeah so yeah changing their attention onto different areas yeah. and things so like from that going one language to other language yeah but it's interesting how um something that you think would make their life a lot harder and i think karen mentioned that sometimes it does early on but when they practice those skills constantly day in day out they actually have broader implications for Mm -hmm. other areas of their life yeah so that was really interesting it reminded me a lot of um uh because being into music as well, music's definitely something that does that as well. It gives you these higher order skills. So like, yeah, learning music's great and it's fun and it's enjoyable. You can get a lot out of it, but mm. you actually, by learning music, you learn all of these fine motor control and mm. you learn pattern recognition and mm. you learn increasing memory and all of these types of things yeah. as well. And um, another area that's also had some interesting research, maybe we can link this to, is... Uh, is philosophy so um there was some research i think it was out of the uk that looked at teaching philosophy to children and the broader implications of that and you go okay well why do kids need to learn philosophy well it's the skills that they learn in doing philosophy that helps them in other areas mm. so this research found that children who learnt philosophy did better at maths did better at english they mm. were better critical thinkers they could analyze situations better mm. and it wasn't necessarily that um philosophy like directly in influence these skills but it's more like philosophy helps you exercise these areas of the brain which is something that i think karen was talking about and when and when you continually exercise these areas of the brain your critical thinking skills your yep. ability to explain a problem when you continually work those areas it has broader implications for other parts of your life yeah that's definitely true i think with all three examples that you you raised um that's one of the reasons, I mean, uh, going back to monolingual versus bilingual, uh, learning English was very difficult for me um, because I had mm-hmm. no exposure at all. Like, uh, I hear it, uh, I, I don't know, obviously, being my native language, but I hear it's actually quite a hard language to learn as well. There's a lot of exceptions, a lot of yeah, rules. Yeah, a lot of rules and then exceptions to the rules. Yeah. You've so just got to learn. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was very difficult 
but l- learning Chinese, and I'm not fluent in Chinese by any stretch of the na- imagination, and something I want to work on when I go to China in a yeah. couple of months, which is going to be really fun. But but learning Chinese uh, was, I think, easier for me than it was um, for many of my contemporaries who were monolinguals. And I think part of that was what uh, part of the reason was is what Karen was mentioning. You know, I'm already open to the idea of um, different grammatical structures uh, uh, working to convey the same sort of information. So when I when I see a sentence in Chinese that's like completely different to English, I'm like, yeah, well, I, I already know that exists because you know I went from diary to English. Yeah. So that's really interesting. But in terms of the benefits, I mean, um, or this is one of the reasons why I decided to do Chinese because I thought, okay. Uh, I'm a sole believer, like a, a strong proponent of um, growth mindset and thinking that intelligence can be can be further expanded. And I think yeah. I think too many times, too often, do we associate uh, genius with the person rather than the environment and the experiences they put themselves through. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you do things like um, learning a different language, doing music, uh, learning a martial arts or sports, I think this expands your mind in different avenues different paths different ways so that when, so you're getting a overall you're getting a benefit from each of these different activities that you're doing but it's expanding your mind it's keeping it malleable it's it's fresh and so that when you're learning a new task you've already exercised those 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 skills those muscles that you need to gain new knowledge and I, and I think that the more diverse your interests are the more diverse you the, the more diverse you are in 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 your in things that you pursue um the better you'll be at at solving issues because yeah, your, your brain really is point. your brain isn't locked in a rigid structure it's constantly yeah. being forced to adapt and, and approach things differently and and, and those broader skills you learn by adapting and by learning something new actually helps you the next time you try and learn something new. So it's like you, oh, yeah. you learn these broader kind of skills that just help you in general yeah. when you do when you diversify your interests a lot. Sure. When you just stick in mind of one thing, you can kind of lose that, I think, yeah. a bit. And there's neurological changes that occur in your brain. I mean, for that cognitive science unit, I was looking at the effect of music uh, on... Uh, Neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and, and Huntington's, not Huntington's disease, sorry, um, Parkinson's and, and hearing loss even, you mm-hmm. know, and, and it mitigates all of that because it keeps those neural pathways active. It makes your brain cells form new pathways and by keeping it active, it's like a muscle. It doesn't atrophy. Yeah. And, and it's really, uh, yeah, it doesn't atrophy. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a very interesting point. Uh, one other thing I liked about this um, conversation you had with Karen is uh, is her methodology because uh, psychology is always in this in this realm of like is it science isn't it science they, they kind of had this like internal dilemma and I guess that's because psychologists tend to use two very different re- styles of research and sometimes both at the same time as well they have quantitative research which is more closely associated with the scientists and um, qualitative research which is things like doing interviews and stuff like that um, both very valuable but I think it was very important to see how how scientific actually psychological research can get because um, here's Karen doing stuff like um, testing children and seeing what picture they look at to determine if they can understand 
the language that they're hearing depending on the accent, um, which is really interesting research. But it just goes to show how, you know, that's quantitative. You can decide, assign values to that and, mm -hmm. and um, do statistical analysis. And just like any kind of scientist would, it's a scientific test in a sense. Yeah. Well, she gave me a tour of her lab as well. And uh, so we'll upload that video later in the week. But uh, people can look at all the tools they have, the eye tracking tools. They have a, a bunch of cool tools that they use in in the Marx Institute the baby lab actually. yeah so they're actually tracking they're actually tracking people's eyeballs the, the eyeballs of these kids to see yeah. what picture they look at and after they've been introduced to the sound yeah. so yeah I wonder um, uh, what, what's interesting is you know when, when you're performing in like when you're doing research on infants and, and babies you, you have to have really novel ways of trying to uh, quantify what you're investigating right so uh, uh, a lot of times so let's let's uh, a good example is when, when infants are born and they want to um, do some sort of tests on them to see for example she said that there's uh, infants born infants already have a predisposition uh, towards the language that they've heard in, yeah, in yeah, the womb cool. uh, based on the intonations yeah um, uh, the intonations and the rhythms and things of the of, language of the language so they yeah. can already recognize their their own native language yeah, yeah. and so the question that one would have is how do they test that do you know how they do it? No, no tell us. Dude, they have like this pacifier thing in their mouth and and so it's again it's I could be wrong, but I think they, they base it on interest. So if a child is looking at something, then they, they are interested and um, it's familiar to them. There's also the, the issue of novelty effect. You know, it may yeah. be new, but we'll just... Uh, uh, and they do, worry, they do all types of research to mitigate those to things mitigate, and yeah, understand them as well yeah. and take them out of the data. So it's not like they ignore that no, stuff. No, no, yeah. they, they account for it. They're very careful about it. But what's interesting is they have a pacifier and they determine um, uh, the familiarity or, or uh, of, of a child towards a certain language by the sucking rate. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. It's really interesting. I first when I heard that, I'm like, that's such a strange way of doing it but then when you think about it like how else are you going to do it yeah yeah you know I guess yeah what is it so they're more content so they uh, they suck harder yeah yeah but yeah it's it's fascinating that they have these methods to quantify uh, what they're what they're investigating so it's not qualitative research um, uh, per se it's, yeah it's, it's, it's quantitative yeah. yeah working with hard numbers and yeah uh, statistical conclusions just like ever, any other scientist mm. and the thing that um i really liked and, and i could actually relate to her, her is when karen was talking about what she loves about research and um and i was probably exactly the same with her she said that she really loves the getting that data in yeah finding like getting that data and crunching it and looking at and taking it home and finding out um what the conclusions are that's probably my favorite my favorite bit as well you know mm. um when i'm might go to the microscope and collect data and you set up things before that and uh, writing up and there's all these different areas of the of research but probably my favorite bit is when you get that data that well, has to be good not all data is good but when you get some good data and you look at it on the computer for the first time and you see that finding that's that's really the mm. bit i love the bit i love is is when you have a hypothesis and the data supports you like yeah yeah <laughs> I think that vindication that you're yeah. right all along especially yeah. no not not even especially when things 
haven't been working out and your hypotheses have been wrong for the past like 10 times yeah yeah <laughs> that's why i put that qualifier when if you get good data you know i've also gone and um spent hours at the, the, the scope and then come back and realize the data's total shit Dang i'm just shit. like oh my god i just <laughs> wasted like a week of my life um but no but it's uh, that for me is the most rewarding part yeah, I don't think it's a waste. I think um, failed experiments give so you a you better. Le- yeah, you yeah. learn. You it learn gives you it. it gives yeah. you a better direction because if if you get it on the first go, and you don't uh, you don't get any negative results, you know, then you might not get the whole picture. So those negative results sometimes point you uh, to to a better explanation. Yeah, I liked how um, I liked how Karen said. Uh, that she's interested in psychology because we view everything through, I guess, the lens of psychology because we're people and we interact with the world that everything we know and everything we learn kind of like is filtered through our, our psyche, mm-hmm. through our minds. And that's why she's interested in psychology. And it brings up that whole, um, that philosophical, um, it was Kant, I think, um, the difference between uh, noumenon and phenomena. So... So phenomena is what we perceive, yeah? So an event occurs in the natural world and and we perceive that event through the filter of our own experiences, that's phenomena. But the event itself, unfiltered, that's that's the noumena, yeah? Mm -hmm. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Uh, So it's almost like ontology and epistemology. Ontology is the objective truth that exists out there. Epistemology is how we come to know that through our senses. So it's like, uh, it's interesting um, because I think science is a really great tool of kind of bridging that gap of working out, okay, we're perceiving these events and how do we know if those events and our conclusions we're drawing from it are indicative of what's actually occurring. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. What else I think she said was fascinating is that without us this would all be meaningless yeah yeah yeah, in, yeah. i know I, I i heard that throw away line and i'm like wow that's a that's a doozy <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna take some unpacking but yeah. i i agree with her in the sense that um without us there may not be another uh, a being that has consciousness to appreciate what's happening yeah you know without us the universe will keep going i mean we're, yeah we're, that's that's the thing know, that i, I kind of maybe i don't know it, she didn't really clarify it too much in in the conversation but um yeah i don't necessarily agree like I, if she was hinting that reality wouldn't exist or something if there was no one to conceive it i, I i'm not really sure i'm with her on that i'm not sure if she actually meant that but that's like relativism and objectivism yeah. dude i had a, a two-hour conversation with Reese, whether whether there is any objective truth out there. Reese is a, a research student in yeah. our in our uh, postgrad room. room. Yeah, he's doing a PhD. Yeah, <laughs> so we could talk about it for two hours straight. But I'm just gonna make some assumptions. I think what she meant was that there wasn't going to be any other uh, being who could uh, who had enough consciousness or uh, was able to you know appreciate the world. I mean, yeah. I think she's she's right in that. I mean, I think it's right because because we don't really, and maybe what she was getting at as well is we only have the phenomena, right? We only mm. have our understanding of what's real. Yeah. Like nobody ever has a total understanding of exactly what it is because everything you experience goes through your own filter. Mm. Yeah. So it's more about what we have is a whole collection of filtered experiences, and we try and piece them together to work out what's actually there. 
So maybe she was getting getting at that, that we can't actually know exactly what's real. We have to piece together our shared experiences to kind of approximate it. Yeah, no, that's true. I agree with that. Um, I thought we should just like, I know you introduced it at the start of this episode, but we should also just quickly talk about the, the blog that we're trying to set up. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, what are we doing? Well, we're going to start a Blabcoats uh, blog. And um, basically, we're going to put a call out for anyone who wants to write write us something on basically on science or science communication. It can be any kind of topic related in that area that you're interested in. Um, and if you can send it in to us, that'd be great. And you, we may publish it on our blog. Yeah, you can do that through our contact us page. Uh, you can send us an email through there. But I was just going to say, it doesn't necessarily have to be about science. It could be research related. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that will encompass all the humanities students and the social sciences as well. The idea is, I think that we kind of it'd be great. Like we can these podcast episodes, they're engagement, but we're only going to release one a week, mm. so it's timed engagement. Where, sorry, I have a really sore throat today, guys. <laughs> um, where this blog though will be a bit more interactive, and we can publish maybe more often on it, and it'd be a great way for to get a bit of community interaction going. And, yeah. and I think that's really brilliant. I love, I love that type of stuff about radio and I'd like to put that into a blog as well. Yeah, and, and also it'd be good to hear, uh, hear from, from the people listening, hear their stories. Yeah. S- see what's up, you know, he, uh, look at, um, to see what they think, you know, they, they might have interesting perspectives. Uh, so that'd also be good to see. So yeah. I'm, I'm interested. And, and, and on, so. that, on that engagement as well and different perspectives, we still want this podcast to be a little bit of a um, interaction between you guys as listeners and the people we're having on. So by all means, we had Brittany answering some questions um, a couple of weeks ago that uh, Kat from Adelaide um, brought up. So if you guys have any questions, send them in and we'll do our best to get them to the researchers directly and we can relay their answers back to you. And that'll be awesome. It'll set up kind of a link between listeners and the guests. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Cool. Shall we end it? Let's end it. Before we end it, just I just want to point out, everyone that I've spoken to who have, uh, who's, who's told me their story about meeting their supervisor, um, they've all been scared shitless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like that, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah it is a little bit because you don't know, you're treading carefully, you want to impress them. That's um, right. But then I think once you're into it a little bit... Then it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. It's like they become human to you. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which is good. Cool. So we'll see you guys next week. Goodbye. Coming up next week on Blap Codes. How was that? <laughs> right. Thanks for listening to Blap Codes. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow it by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabquotes at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.
When the rain is falling in your face And the whole world is on your face I could be the one